This is Resident 204.4 FM, flipping marvellous as always. I'm Nick Hennigan and welcome to another edition of Literary London, where we talk about things, well, you know, literary and kind of Londony. Except today, I'm pleased to say that we're going to be talking literary London with a distinctly Irish twist. Um, so I'd like to welcome once more Calhoun Dalat, who's uh, becoming a bit of an old friend to this programme, really, Calhoun. You've been on a few times <laughs> talking about various things. Um, and we're going to talk this time about W.B. Yeats, who, um, you know, the great Irish poet who was effectively brought up in the UK and specifically in our part of town uh, in, in West London. Um, I should also say as well, if you're uh, near YouTube, you can catch this on the Maverick Theatre Company YouTube account. You can also catch this on um, bohemianbritain.com and it will be also podcast as well. Now, I mention that because we're actually, as I've done a few times with most of the shows, actually since lockdown, we're talking, we're recording this as well. We're recording a video of this. And later on, I'm going to ask Cal to show us some photos of a very special uh, artwork that's been created. So, first of all, hello again, Carl. How are you doing? <laughs> Hi, Nick. Good, good to see you again. Good to be on the channel again. How's your, how's your end of lockdown going? Well, interestingly, lots of things have expanded. I mean, poetry, one of the things that we love about poetry and love about poetry in West London, where we were involved, my wife, Anne-Marie Fife, a poet, was in running Coffee House Poetry at the Troubadour for many years. And that was the, the ultimate cellar club in London. It had been folk and poetry, but it was very much poetry from our point of view. Uh, and we thought with all of that becoming inaccessible, um, somehow one would lose the great um, sort of collective enjoyment of poetry. But of course, moving on to Zoom, and we had a, um, a poet, uh, Naomi Shihab Nye, a Palestinian-American poet, um, last night, um, uh, talking to her from our house here in Chiswick, uh, with uh, an audience of 100 people who are poets, not just the crowd who used to come to Coffeehouse Poetry in the Troubadour, but poets in Minneapolis and Montreal and New Zealand, five o'clock in the morning, um, getting up to uh, enjoy poetry. And collectively, of course, in a Zoom, you're, you're looking at all those faces that you used to see in the audience and some that we would never have seen in a London audience. So at uh, that and the summer school that we run in Ireland, which is named after a local poet from the Glens of Antrim, the John Hewitt International Summer School, again with a, a video uh, all, all online last summer, this summer hybrid. So there will be a, a, um, a real presence there plus um, video. So poetry seems to survive in a way um, that lots of other large, larger groupings have had difficulty with, you know, but um, and poetry workshops, of course, have gone on on Zoom by email. All that communication is still there and perhaps reaching out much wider. So, yeah, strange not to be in a crowd listening to a poet speak and yet great to be on a screen and, and having that conversation and hearing the poems. Yeah. yeah, you do kind of get the impression that that it's changed the landscape. And I know certainly some meetings and th I mean, I've, I've been doing these creative producers of workshops and we've had people from South Africa involved which would never have happened had we done them in Soho which was the original plan and you get the impression that, the, that some of the meetings I've got arranged for the autumn are going to be a hybrid so there'll be the live element but also the sort of zoom element too. Yeah and I think it's it's interesting that the arts are getting used to that. Business had been using it for conferencing for years, although people did still fly all over the world and use up air miles and fuel. But um, nonetheless, lots of businesses were con uh, talking daily to India or, or Los Angeles or whatever um, and had got used to that. And I think in the arts, we said, oh, no, we're too special for that. You have to be there. You have to be present. Well, 
you do and you don't. There will be different situations that we adapt to, like everything. Um, and of course, so much has changed in the last 15 months. What the new normal is, has still got to really be defined. Yes, it's very interesting. I went to the uh, Lyric Hammers. I oh, know, I went to the Bush Theatre. Funny enough, see this. It's called Harm. I'm just holding the book up now, this picture up to the camera, uh, which is a, which was a one-woman play, one-person play by Phoebe Claire Powell. And interestingly, I've not yet seen it, but the BBC have made a version of it for their... Um, uh, the BBC Four had a thing called Lights Up, a season called Lights Up. And it'd be very interesting to see how they do it. I had an adaptation of A Christmas Carol, which was uh, which I wrote. It's actually based on an old Charles Dickens script that he wrote himself. And that's that sort of toured America last year, and it's been to Italy, and it's been the UK. This wow. year, they did a video version at Nottingham. And it was very kind of weird, because I directed this thing as well as adapted it. It was very weird thinking in televisual terms or zoom terms but it actually it turned out to be it worked quite well it worked very well in fact you know they they did a grand job and and so talk about just a bit about yourself Cahal because obviously we've chatted a bit and um, you're in what some people will call the most literary part of London Chiswick uh, yeah. which is uh, something from the from the, the, the book festival has, uh, has sort of started with and Torrin yeah. Douglas who's a champion of all that but just talk about your own background whereabouts in Ireland are you from originally and how long have you been here for? Well, I'm from the Glens of Andrum. I've been here since the 70s. Um, and um, I mean, I, I was at Queen's in Belfast, which is the university from which some of the greatest poets of our time have come, including Seamus Heaney, Paul Muldoon, Maeve Rilke, and there was a whole generation. Uh, I came here and, um, and I, I'd been interested in Yeats all through school. In fact, although I say I'm from the Glens of Andrum, my grandfather was from Belfast. Uh, but he in turn had come from Sligo, so um, his, which is where Yeats's maternal grandfather lived. In fact, um, from the same little village, Ballysadair, just outside Sligo, where Yeats's maternal grandfather lived. So I'd kind of grown up with a Yeats myth, uh, and I came to London um, looking for work um, in, in the IT world. In fact, I'd, I'd done an IT degree at Queen's, although I spent more time uh, at poetry readings, probably, than I did in the, what was then a computer lab. Can you imagine somewhere being called a computer lab? Uh, there's more power in this laptop in front of me than there was in the entire computer lab in Belfast. But but um, so so on, and I spent a number of years in IT, always writing poems. Um, eventually, not just publishing poems, but getting involved in um, uh, in. Uh, writing reviews for the Times Literary Supplement for The Guardian, uh, and then being asked to be a regular contributor on BBC Radio 4's Saturday Review, which was great fun for a number of years. It's it's a lot less fun now in lockdown because Saturday Review doesn't have any opening nights. It doesn't have film screenings until film theatres pick up again. So the past 15 months has been very quiet, but it was a chance about once a month to go out and look at the latest with a group of, of for other panelists to go along to a, a film, a play, read a book, go to an exhibition and see the latest um, museum or, or whatever, and then sit around the Saturday evening for 45 minutes talking about it. Um, so, I mean, I loved that that life and the exposure to all the arts, but but it was poetry primarily that I was interested in, in terms of my own art, and um, uh, a, a number of poets that I've particularly been involved with, championing, studying, and so on. Uh, and that's that's kind of um, being a poetry organizer, uh, along with my wife, as I said, who's a poetry organizer and was chair of the, the Poetry Society. Um, uh, so we both kind of done that kind of work. Spend about 
uh, until 2020, we're spending about the first half of the year in America because there's a great interest there in poetry and Irish poetry. So we were either on tours, Anne-Marie was writing a book, which I think, uh, Nick, you came along to the event and, and talked about Anne-Marie's book, No Far Shore, which was about coasts she'd grown up on and coasts of Scotland, coasts of uh, America and Canada. So that uh, took us uh, one spring in America, another spring in researching in Texas, another one uh, as writers in residence at a university in North Carolina. So we spent a lot of time in America, but in the meantime, of course, all our um, arts organizing was going on here, both in terms of events and in terms of this uh, Yitz project in, in uh, West London. Yes, and if you want to uh, see that uh, Anne Marie's uh, uh, interview, the chat that we had, that's also going to be on. Uh, it's on. The, it's on the LondonLiteraryPubCrawl.com website podcast page, and it's going to be on. Uh, I lose track. It's going to be on BohemianBritain.com. I think next week they're starting to put some of my old archive stuff on. So it's lovely. It's a brilliant, beautiful book. Um, so I mean, I I love talking to writers, and I love talking to you as well, Carl. And we could talk forever about what got you going. But we, I know specifically you're kind of busting, and I completely understand. You, you've really created this monster in West London, which is to raise huge amounts of money to put up the first kind of proper tribute to WB8. So just just tell us where this madness started, where you've already mentioned the Yates thing, um, uh, and where you are and what, what's actually planned. And I, I know we've got some photos as well, so I'll ask you for some photos in a bit. I'll come to those. I mean, the, the, yeah. the, the, the genesis of the idea. So um, you mentioned Bohemian Britain there. It's a great, great title. And, and uh, one of the great things about Bedford Park, which is, if anyone looks at it when they get off a turn of green tube, it's a bunch of red brick houses in retro Queen Anne style built between 1880, 1876, say, uh, and 1890 something, uh, built very deliberately to attract an arty clientele. So people can list all the artists, illustrators, watercolorists, etc., who lived in Bedford Park. And in fact, the, the property developer, Jonathan Carr from Dublin, who was an Irishman, built by Irish labor, um, but he, his brother, was the director of the Grosvenor Gallery. So they had naturally had a number of artists that they wanted to say, there's this new village being built, this quaint village out on the river in Chiswick, out in the countryside, of course, as Chiswick was then, but you could still get into town to do to see your sitters and to see your, your patrons by tube because the tube had just come along. So they built this wonderful place and they built it as a self-conscious Bohemia. A uh, bit of a utopia as well, because it was pastoral. It was the opposite of what smoky Victorian London was. And one of the people who was attracted to that was a chap called John Butler Yates, who had done a law degree at Trinity, surprisingly, but had decided to chuck it all up and become an artist. Well, that's the essence of Bohemia, isn't it? Giving up a good career in the law to come to <laughs> London. And he had a two-year-old son at that stage, uh, Willie. Um, so he and his wife came to London, moved in various places. He wasn't terribly successful, one has to say. But one day he heard from some of his artist friends that they were building this village out at Chiswick. And he heard, and this doesn't, I, I, the, the reality doesn't always match up when you're buying off plan in a housing development, but he heard there was going to be a wall all around it so nobody else could get in, a little bit fanciful. And it was going to have its own, no, there were going to be no newspapers allowed in, in so they would live in this completely wonderful commune. In fact, there is no wall. Um, so, you know, Donald Trump and, and John Butler Yates discovered there is no wall, um, but it's still a beautiful place. But what happened, of course, as, as with everything, is there's a magic moment. And, and in that period, uh, William Butler Yeats, so the Yeats has moved here when, uh, when Willie was about uh, 11 or 12. He went to Godolphin School, which was a boys' school then. People may be surprised to hear that. Uh, and 
they loved that first house. He was playing among all the brickworks, talking to the Irish labourers, um, and his father was meeting all these wonderful people who were artists and political thinkers and historians and so on. So the Yitzes then, I think they ran out of money, went back to Dublin for a couple of years, came back again when Yitz was 20-ish, and um, that is really the magic time in his life. So he, um, in, in one particular house, which is a couple of hundred yards from where I'm sitting, um, he wrote the Lake Isle of Inish Free. He was inspired by Chiswick 8, which is a, an 8, for anybody who doesn't know, spelled E-Y-O-T, and is a Saxon word for an islet or a river island. So there's this little island in the middle of the river, and when Yates went down there, it reminded him of an island in the lake, uh, Lake Gill, Loch Gill. Um, in, in Sligo, so where he spent his summers, because like many migrant families, of course, they were constantly popping back to the grannies to spend a couple of months there when funds ran out or for the summer months or whatever. In fact, his brother Jack, Ireland's greatest modern painter, spent most of his young years, up to age seven, in Sligo because the mother couldn't cope with his family and the, the financial pressures and so on. So they're not a terribly well-off family, but they're tremendously talented. And this father, who's a painter, gives them great ideas and a great sense of themselves. So when Willie's back here in his 20s, he writes The Lake Isle of Inish Free. He writes a lot of poems influenced by the arts and crafts movement because the whole place had been developed on arts and crafts lines, which meant putting, putting art into everyday life, putting aesthetics into manufacturing. So he's influenced by that. He's influenced by Walt Whitman's poetry, which everybody in Bedford Park apparently loved at that time. It was the, it was the new thing. He's, he, some of his neighbours come and ask him to write a play for their little girl. And uh, he writes a poem, play called Land of Heart's Desire, as he says, with my Irish theatre in mind. And from that, he event, eventually develops the Abbey Theatre. I have to be careful what I say here because one of my committee members on this project is a great grandson of Frank Fay, who founded the Abbey Theatre. Well, Willie Yates and Frank Fay both founded the Abbey Theatre, but but you know, so so there are these complicated histories. So this was a magical time in his life, and what what intrigued me about it was that. He's not merely somebody who lived in Bedford Park, as one might say, you know, Philip Larkin lived in this house in Hull for three years or 20 years, but he was a product of Bedford Park. That bohemian utopian thing created Willie Yeats. Of course, Ireland, Ireland made him, I don't take away from that. He loved the landscape, the legends and the lore, but it was in Bedford Park that he could bounce off other writers. He could get his plays published. His next door neighbor, for goodness sake, Elkin Matthews um, published The Yellow Book. He was, you know, if, if you're gonna send reject, uh, poems off to somebody popping them into the house next door is pretty fearful because I can't imagine Elkin Matthews coming back and saying Willie I don't like it and having to face Willie's father who would say you're publishing so you know it was a great communal progressive egalitarian neighborhood you know middle class of course and arty and all that so they weren't the poorest of the poor but they supported each other and they supported Willie Yates. So that idea has always been at the back of my head. And for years, I've been taking people for literary walks, as you know, Nick, and I've, I've taken yeah. not just um, local people as part of the Bedford Park Festival, but ambassadors and American academics and actors and poets and American students year after year on this walk, which takes in William Morris's house. You can see the logic of that because all the arts and crafts stuff was happening there. Lily Yates, Willie's sister, worked for May Morris for a long time, embroidering golden and silver cloth. So that comes into our story. Uh, Chiswick 8, of course, and Chiswick Churchyard, and then back up to Bedford Park and explaining how the whole thing grew and how it involved G.K. Chesterton, Camille Pissarro, uh, John Todd Hunter, Florence Farr, George Bernard Shaw, 
the whole of literary London was focused in this wonderful little place. So I've been doing those walks for a long time. And at uh, Yeats 2015, so Yeats was Yeats's 150th birthday. We still talk as if he was with us, but Yeats's 150th birthday in 2015, we had Fergal Keane along at our Bedford Park Festival Poetry Evening, and he sang the Sally Gardens and he talked about Yeats. And at a chat at the end, he just said, why isn't there anything around here? And I said, well, there's the walks and there, I've done lectures all over the world on Yeats, Bedford Park, but why isn't there something? And so that, that all started then and, and it's kind of rolled on from there. Because there is actually, there's, there's a blue plaque where he used to live. But, but so the other thing about, as you said, how W.B. Yeats kind of was made here. Um, and he, he, he's the only, is it right, he's the only uh, award-winning, the only poet brought up in, the, in London to, to win a Nobel Prize. He's, he's, well, he's the only poet brought up in, in Britain to win a Nobel Prize. A very odd thing, but um, uh, although Harold Pinter has a Nobel Prize, but we think of Pinter as a dramatist rather than a poet. And of course, Yeats wrote some plays, but we think of him as a poet rather than a dramatist. So as a poet, Yeats is the, and other, other uh, English writers have won the Nobel Prize for literature, but as a poet, Yeats is the only uh, poet brought up in England to win the Nobel Prize, and nobody's quite clocked that yet. Well, they have in the past few months because I've been going on about it ever since so slightly. <laughs> but, um, Pinter's yeah. another, uh, another Chiswick resident as well, isn't he? He used to live on the uh, Pinter, I think. Yes, uh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah, used to live. So, so what was the moment? Because you've now got these plans for this incredible um, artwork. So, where where was the? Well, so it was Fergal that, that sort of pushed you. That out that, that, that evening was a big decision. What I did then was I I went that summer to Sligo to the Yates Summer School in Sligo, um, which I'd been to. Before. And of course, we'd gone to family holidays in Sligo because of the family connection. But I went there and talked to the people who run an annual summer school, which brings together all the academics from all over the world. And a great number of them are interested in the London side of Yeats as much as the Irish side of Yeats. Everybody knows the Irish side of Yeats. So that was a key point. I went to visit Dan Mulhall, who was the Irish ambassador in London. Uh, he's since moved to Washington, which has been very useful because he invited us over there to do a launch of this project in Washington. But his successor, Adrian O'Neill, uh, again is passionate about the project because for both of those ambassadors it's talking about the complexity of the relationship between Ireland and Britain and it's all it often gets kind of characterized it's a kind of a, an opposition almost particularly since Brexit there's been all this Ireland's trying to do this England's trying to do that and um, whereas the cultural relationship has been constant flowing common travel area people coming and migrating whether it's the Yeats's or the people who build the houses that the Yeats lived in and um, whether it's playwrights like Oscar Wilde George Bernard Shaw Richard Sheridan um, Oliver Goldsmith sometimes you find it hard to think of a playwright who wasn't Irish actually but yes there are some this chap called Shakespeare but but, but there's, there's wonderful connection um, and of course that connection is still there with writers and with plays and with poetry um, but on the political level you could lose sight of it so I think it's wonderful that this rather um, you know beautifully conserved um, garden suburb first garden suburb in the world and that has a whole history of its own as to how it influenced garden cities garden suburbs housing development that this rather conserved and maybe almost conservative place now is remembering its radical progressive history and uh, the fact that it welcomed an Irish exile family uh, the fact that somebody from an Irish exile family in West London today, as 120 years ago, 150 years ago, can grow up and become a Nobel Prize winner is something of value. And, and uh, the reason I say that's of value is Hounslow Council recognised that if you look at what migrant families bring to uh, London, 
not not just the Yitzes, but ever since from all the different waves of migration uh, that wash up, if you like, on, on, on our shores that bring in some refreshment that that um, people who who come to London bring something of their own culture and revitalize the capital, but they also use the capital's institutions, the press, the theaters, the, the poetry groups, um, the orchestras, the opera, and so on. They use those to develop their own culture, and as Yates did in no uncertain terms, and various other um, uh, writers from the Indian subcontinent, from the Caribbean, and so on, have come to London and developed their own culture and gone back and said, "This is who we are. We've, you know, we've got. I got this published in London, but it's actually about us back here." And that's Yeats's story in a way, because he was a foot in the door in London because he'd grown up there, and so his influence in terms of the arts was very powerful. I suppose Dylan Thomas as well did a similar thing, if perhaps not quite as uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely, quite to the degree that Yeats did. So you've got this idea. For this, tell us about what what you're trying to do. It's it's a fantastic right. so, 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 it's, so it's it's quite difficult to say to an artist, I want something that celebrates not what just. Was the what was the process? Did you think right? It needs to be an artwork because you, you know there's a blue plaque. So what was the process? It, it 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 needed to be an object that people could see. That people passing on the train would go, whether they'd heard of Bedford Park or not. What's that thing? It's absolutely beautiful. I want to get off the train and see it, or I'm commuting every day. I must come up here on Saturday and look at it, or I'm coming in from Heathrow because I'm an academic who's just flown in from uh, Seoul in South Korea, and, and I want to know what that thing is and discover what's around there. And people would come to it, and I mean, there's more There's more to the process. Once you see the artwork, you, you've got to see all around Bedford Park. It will tell you on signage, uh, what the various local places are. There'll be a button you can click, pick up a QR code and find all the places on your mobile phone, hear a little Yates poem oh, read at this or that place. But all of that depends on getting people to get off the train or make, make Bedford Park a destination. And um, so it had to be a thing. Um, and we said artwork, but it wasn't going to be a statue. I think statues are rather kind of, it's just a person, isn't it? And, and it's not as, and it also had to express his youth. I didn't want the senator yet, so I didn't want the grand old man with the big hat and the cape um, parading and saying, I, I, I'm famous. We wanted the young Yates, we wanted the upsurge. We wanted something that represented Yates springing from the ground of Bedford Park because it was an artificially created bohemia, utopia, pastoral scenario with tree-lined. It was a little bit of countryside in London and that is what propelled him upwards. And I wanted to see also Bedford Park's ideas and ideals, uh, progressive, suffragist, feminist, vegetarian a lot of them and um, you know egalitarian post-colonial anti-imperial springing up from the ground um, and, and, and that process was kind of fascinating because we'd got all the help we could get from the embassy in terms of we can do you a great launch you know bring uh, and we'd been talking to various artists about this and um, the one person who seemed to have that uh, exuberance in their art for me, was Conrad Shawcross, who created the brilliant paradigm at the Crick Building, which is much, much higher than, than we're going. Uh, he created the optic cloak at Greenwich, which takes um, a, sort of a, 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 a functional building and builds a great dazzling piece on top of it. He had done um, the sunlight thing in the uh, Royal, um, Royal Academy Courtyard. So um, he was in the right area. He was also very interested in science. His things tend to be angular, psychogeometry, as he talks about. And of course, Yeats, and this will surprise people, was more interested in and much better at science at Godolphin School than he was at English, art, literature, Latin, or any of those things. So um, 
I think there's a, and we want to inspire kids locally to be either a great poet or a great scientist. So Comrade had fascinated me for some time. So we started coming over here, met the committee, uh, met the local vicar, met people from the Bedford Park Society, and went on the walk with me, which you know, Nick, takes quite a long time. It can take longer and longer the more I talk. So, um, so we did the walk and he understood both what the arts and crafts movement was trying to do, which is to put something beautiful into everyday life. And at the launch at the um, Irish Embassy, he heard um, a friend of ours, the, the National Theatre actor Kieran Hines, reading its poem. Now, Kieran has been in The Terror, anybody who's watched that, or Game of Thrones. He was, I, I don't know the names, but uh, Mance Raider in The Game of Thrones. He was in Rome, but he's been in lots of Brian Friedel plays and lots of Irish plays. He was in translations recently at, at the National Theatre. So Kieran read a poem called He Wishes for the Cloths of Heaven. And it's a poem in which Yeats was intrigued by the fact that William Morris and May Morris and, and, and his own sister, Lily Yeats, were embroidering very medieval garments, medieval cloths. I mean, when I first came to Bedford Park, lots of people still had these tapestries hanging in their studios. So the, this, this idea of embroidered cloths, illuminated cloths with gold and silver woven in. So Yeats writes this poem, Had I the heavens embroidered cloths, uh, and wrought with golden and silver light. I won't do it the way Kieran Hines did, and I won't do it justice. And, and Conrad latched on to the golden and silver light and saw that this thing springing up from the ground had to be the golden silver light of Yeats's illumination, of his genius, of his poetry, coming up from the pastoral ground of Bedford Park. And so he looked, he went home and looked at the poem. He'd, he'd read all of Yeats during this time. And he also was fascinated by something Yeats talked about, about gyres, about how society moves in cycles and spins and, and centuries and movements and so on. And so he got quite involved in that and came up with something that was following his own developmental path in psychogeometries, which was about helical tetrahedral shapes and actually expressed ju not just gold and silver light, but, but the, the whole idea. In fact, uh, and I, I'll describe it for those who are, but can I show you that? Yeah, I'll just say, if you've got, yes, you've got, you've got a picture here, haven't you? Which yeah, so if, if we just take a look at that and that briefly is Conrad but we look at this first which is as you can see it's a spiral it's the sense of something rising up G.K. Chesterton said of Bedford Park it wasn't so much that you remember John Butler Yeats thought there would be a wall to protect this little uh, environment from from outsiders but G.K. Chesterton said it wasn't that the world had come in and conquered Bedford Park it was that Bedford Park had gone out and conquered the world so in that spiral you can see that Bedford Park's ideas post-colonial suffragist um, egalitarian became the, the blueprint for the 20th century spiraled out into the world but you can it's also see a, a sort of gold gold spiral how, how tall is that would it be about that's 4.5 metres, so that, that's, yeah. uh, and anybody who sees the picture can see that people will be looking up at it because we want it to be uplifting. I thought of the Yeats line, he bade his soul fly upwards, and this bids you, if you're just on the way to the train, you're late, you're late for school, you're coming back with bags of shopping, you're still going to look up and, and yeah. be uplifted uh, by this spiral that, that's reaching up into the sky. So, I mean, that, that's it. If you look at the base, engraved around there in golden letters are inwrought with gold and silver light, the blue and the dim and the dark cloths of night and the light and the half light. And Conrad's idea is that not to use gold and silver only because as the seasons change and as the day changes and the street lights change, you will get blue and, and dim and half light and light. So it, it will have that sense of shifting of all the different lights that Yeats was looking for uh, and genius. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it looks gorgeous, doesn't it? I mean, I'm aware of the fact that we're, we're quite short on time, really. Yeah. So you've got to find quite a bit of money for this, though. Yes. I mean, uh, the the, the um, idea was um, that the, the total cost is 134,000. So, um, uh, yeah. So the total cost is 134,000. And you've launched, and then, a, you've launched a, a fundraising campaign. Yes, we launched a fundraising campaign. Um, just, right. So, um, just give me, the, give me the details if you've got. Yeah, yeah. Where, can, okay. where can people find out more? Yeah, uh, so, so we, 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 of the 134,000, we've raised 114,000 already. And we've had grants from the London Borough of Hounslow, from the Royal Academy. Um, and so... Uh, and from the Josephine Hart Poetry Foundation, um, and from the Irish Embassy, we've had a fifteen thousand pound grant from them. So um, the at the minute we've only another twenty thousand to raise, uh, and people of course can go and look at this uh, at, at the images. They can look at um, if I just stop sharing screen there. Does that make sense? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah. yeah okay. Sure. So um, yeah. So so they can look at it uh, at W www.wbedfordpark.com and I'm sure you'll put that on the uh, YouTube version at the end. Um, They can find the story on Twitter uh, under at Yates Bedford Park, that's at Y-E-A-T-S B-E-D-F-O-R-D-P-K just to get it to fit into Twitter. Um, And and from from the website, they can find the crowdfunding platform and just see how many people, and they're poets, they're local residents, they're actors, they're celebrities. Uh, It's been a wonderful wonderful sort of confirming uh, upsurge of support for the idea of celebrating, oddly, Ireland's national poet in the middle of London. Brilliant. Uh, that's it. We've run out of time, but thank you so much, Carl, for talking about that. If you want to know any more details, you can see see this on the Maverick Theatre YouTube channel. You can also see it on bohemianbritain.com. Uh, we're waving to you now, actually. Uh, and uh, if you'd like to get in touch, as always, radio at mavericktheatre.co.uk is probably the easiest. But thank you very much again, Carl. Uh, I'm Nick Hennigan. This is Literary London on Resonance 104.4 FM. Thanks very much, Nick.